Hello, everybody. I only recently discovered that California has a task force on reparations for African-Americans in that state. Now, as you probably know, reparations is a hot topic. How do we make up for the gross inequities between African-Americans and whites in this country? There are inequities and uh, disparities in health, wealth, education, criminal justice, and so forth. People have been calling for reparations because there seems to be no other way to bridge that gap. According to the Brookings Institute, African-Americans are the only group that have not received any form of reparations for legally enforced racial discrimination. Native Americans received land and billions of dollars for being driven off their lands. Payments were made to Japanese Americans for their internment during World War II. The Marshall Plan provided reparations to Jews for the Holocaust. Now, I'm not claiming that any of these efforts were sufficient by any means, but they did implicitly acknowledge the harm that was done. In contrast, in this country, slavery and Jim Crow created the disparities that I just mentioned, but nothing has been done to bridge that. I'm delighted to tell you that the state of California is now moving ahead with a reparations task force. And I'm even more delighted to bring you the chair of that task force, Camilla Moore. Camilla Moore is a reparations and justice scholar and attorney. Here she is to talk about the important and controversial work of the California Task Force on Reparations. Hello, everybody. I am beyond delighted to introduce to you Camila Moore, who is chair of the Reparations Task Force in California. And yes, you heard me. There's actually a task force in California to address rap reparations is it to African-Americans, descendants of Africa. And mm -hmm. does it include other groups or is it just mainly African-Americans? African-Americans specifically. <laughs> it's happening, folks. This <laughs> is something that people have been talking about forever since I can, for 40 years that I can remember. And it's actually happening. The whole state, you know, they, the saying, where California goes, so goes the nation. Mm -hmm. And so my hope is that this is the beginning of something that will sweep the nation. Kamala is a reparatory justice scholar and an attorney with a specialization in entertainment and intellectual property transactions. He's chair of this task force and is a very esteemed task force with senators, state senators, and Amos Brown, who is uh, nationally famous, is on this. Yes. Uh, so this is this is uh, quite an amazing thing. 
Again, my name is Camila Moore, and I'm the chairperson of the California Reparations Task Force. I'm from Los Angeles, California, uh, or Lamert Park originally. Some people call it South Central LA. <laughs> um, so, you know, I grew up in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. Um, but, you know, individually, you know, I grew up in a household with, you know, a strong, you know, Black American single mother who, you know, worked full time, also raising, mm. you know, three children, also was going to school at the same time. But even through all those responsibilities, she also instilled into her children, you know, a deep sense of pride um, for, you know, African-American and Black American history and culture. So also as a child, I love to read. And sometimes I would even read, you know, slave narratives. Um, and so wow. very, <laughs> like how many children are, you know, out there reading slave narratives, right? But so that is, you know, it alludes to me just reflecting back on my life, you know, from a very early age, you know, I had this very deep sense of pride about African-American history and culture. And I also had a deep understanding of what was owed to us, you know, based off of our uh, contributions to this country, particularly based on 250 years of forced labor. And, and so, you know, I carried that, um, that knowledge, you know, with me when I Went to undergraduate at UCLA. I was highly involved in, you know, African-American activism. Well, hang on a minute before you go further. Mm -hmm. You said what's owed to us. Yeah. That's a subject of contention. So explain yeah. how you can make a definitive statement about owed, owed to, us. to us. That's great. Thank you for um, asking me that question because this is something that has been uncovered um, through this historic uh, process that is being that is the California Reparations Task Force. So when I say you know owed to us, you know, I'm speaking to you know, a particular point of time in this country, particularly uh, the Reconstruction period in this country, whereby you know you had the Emancipation Proclamation that was issued by President Abraham Lincoln in 1863, which declared you know all enslaved Black people to be free. Um, but then that's where you have Juneteenth that came along two and a half years later, there were still black people in this country that thought they were still to be enslaved. And it took, you know, union troops going into the more Western parts of the Confederate States, particularly Galveston, Texas in 1865 to, you know, free the rest of our ancestors, so to speak. But, you know, during that period, as I said, you know, there, it was a period of reconstruction uh, where, you know, there was promises to these newly, um, freed African slaves to help from the federal government. There was federal government promises uh, to help these newly freed African slaves transition from slavery to freedom. Um, and some of that assistance would have looked like, you know, the establishment of the Freemans Bureau and the Freemans Bank, which was established, but is very short lived after it was destroyed and dismantled. Um, after the promise of reconstruction was broken, particularly after the assassination of President Lincoln um, and the emergence of, you know, Andrew Johnson. Um, and then also you had Special Order 15 by General Sherman that essentially declared that, you know, these newly freed enslaved, these newly freed Africans would, you know, obtain 40 acres and a mule. Yes. Um, so what I mean by old, I, I'm talking to just very deliberate um, promises from the federal government during the reconstruction period that were short lived, but yet dismantled um, by racists like Andrew Johnson. Okay, 
So you're dating the old back to reconstruction era. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So I interrupted you. I'd like you to finish your story. So you went to college. Mm -hmm. You said you specialized in focused on what again? So, yeah, I went to UCLA for undergrad You know, I majored in, you know, generic political science. I had minors in education and film, but, you know, I focused my um, activism work, student activism work on, you know, African-American issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then also I went to Columbia Law School two years after I graduated from UCLA. And, you know, I intentionally chose to, um, you know, go to Columbia Law School because they had really great programs. Um, in terms of international law and human rights law. And, you know, I had this understanding that I want um, to be a a repertory justice scholar. I want to fight for reparations for the African-American community. I want reparations as a topic to be taken more seriously. Um, And so, you know, I utilized my law school experience um, to do that, for lack of better Wow. Yeah. So this is a straight trajectory here from reading slave narratives <laughs> to choosing a law school where you can specialize in, in reparations and justice. Exactly. That's incredible. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. So here you are, mm-hmm. you graduate. How did the task force even come to be? Great question. So I credit the task force existence to uh, now Secretary of State Shirley Weber. She's the first African-American Secretary of State of California, but she was she also served in the California State Legislature as an assembly member. Um, And, you know, in 2020, uh, she uh, championed AB 3121, which is the bill that, you know, this task force scopes and powers are predicated on. You know, Shirley Weber or Secretary Shirley Weber is very well respected. She was very well respected in the California state legislature. She was able to shepherd bipartisan support for this effort. And then ultimately, Governor Gavin Newsom signed the bill into law in October 2020, and it took about a year or so for um, applicants to apply and to be selected by the three different elected officials who appointed the nine members of the task force. And so I was appointed um, by the Speaker of the California State Assembly, Anthony Rendon, and the nine-member task force had our first meeting in June of last year. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you applied. Yes. So anyone in the state of California could apply. <laughs> so you applied and you got it. And so that means your credentials or, and or your contacts were worthy enough that they, they let you, they said she can do this. So how did you become chair? Yes. So I became chair at the first meeting that the task force had um, in June of 2021 on that that is where we elected amongst the nine members who was going to serve as chair and vice chair. And essentially, I came prepared with a speech, you know, detailing uh, why, um, you know, I would like to be chair. And um, essentially, the, the task force members were convinced and elected me to be to serve this role. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have you back to talk about goal directedness and achievement and putting yourself forward. This is a remarkable story. I mean, just who you are is a remarkable story. <laughs> so, so you wanted to be chair and you came prepared to say, this is why I should be chair. And mm-hmm. why did you want to be chair? 
It's a great question. Uh, you know, partly because I wanted to be chair for a couple of reasons, but one, you know, as I stated before, you know, I went to law school with a particular intention in mind to study reparations so that once I graduated, I could speak to reparations <clears throat> on a level of, you know, a particular expertise and knowledge base. And so I think, you know, out of all the nine members of the task force, I think I'm the only one, um, you know, who dedicated a significant portion of their academic experience on actually studying reparations, which, you know, I just found to be personally significant. So I realized that, you know, out of the nine members of the task force, I was probably the, the, the only one who dedicated a significant portion of their academic experience to studying reparations. So not only did I attend Columbia Law School for law school, where I studied reparatory justice while there, I also studied abroad at the University of Amsterdam Law School. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a master thesis on global repertory justice for the transatlantic slave trade, slavery, and their legacies. And I obtained a master of laws or an LLM from that institution for international criminal law. And so that's, this, mm-hmm. that's amazing. You yeah. know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, well, of course, there's going to be a repertory justice scholar somewhere, but I just did it literally never crossed my mind that someone would devote their life to this subject rather than have it as a separate topic. Okay, so keep going. Exactly, precisely. Um, So, you know, I dedicated the majority of my studies, uh, professional studies um, on reparations. Um, And so I use that as leverage essentially to, um, you know, be chair of the task force and then also you know, the law that, you know, mandates this task force, um, if you look at the law, it says that the final plans for reparations has to comport with international human rights law standards. And so, yeah, I'm the human rights law expert essentially on the task force. Philosophically, for 40 years, probably more, I've heard debates about whether uh, there should be or should not be reparations. And would reparations for one group of people disenfranchise another group of people? And what about the people who didn't, who never enslaved anybody and they're just trying to do their job and raise their families? Why should they have to pay for it? So how do you answer those questions? Uh, those are great questions. Um, and so philosophically speaking, I like to, to say, you know, there's this term called standing in the shoes. So, you know, yes, you know, no one alive today, um, you know, was a plantation owner, so to speak. Right. Um, but that doesn't negate that slavery existed in this country that it was, you know, facilitated and orchestrated by um, um, the federal government and state governments. And that also doesn't negate that there are literal, you know, badges and incidents or lingering negative effects of the institution of slavery that particularly, you know, negatively impact the African-American community. 
And so when we talk about reparations for the institution of slavery, um, again, it's not necessarily about slavery. It's really about the, um, the broken promise of the federal government um, uh, uh, of reconstruction in this country, right? It's really about, there were promises made by the federal government to newly freed African slaves after emancipation that they reneged on. And that, that reneging, that broken promise has had um, unrelenting negative impacts against the African-American community. And so not only are African-Americans standing in the shoes of their ancestors, and that's a terminology that was used for the descendants of Jewish Holocaust victims, right? Reparations in some instances have been paid not only to actual victims of the Holocaust, but of their descendants under the understanding that the descendants of these Holocaust victims are standing in the shoes of their ancestors, right? The same kind of philosophical argument should apply to African-Americans who descend from chattel slavery. So we're owed reparations for the institution of slavery as we're standing in the shoes of our ancestors, but we are also owed reparations due to those broken promises of reconstruction by the federal government that is still impacting us today. So what's fascinating to me is that you're laying this on slavery. And I had, I thought that the harm, the recurrent harm was done during segregation in terms of theft of labor, theft of property. Yes. Does that figure into your committee's uh, thinking? Yes. And so not only are we studying, you know, the harms or the atrocities perpetuated against the African-American com community during the period of enslavement, but we're also, you know, addressing the, the atrocities committed against the African-American community during the Jim Crow period. And then also the atrocities perpetuated against the African-American community um, more contemporary, com more contemporarily. But yes, there in our in our uh, historic 500 page report, you know, each chapter is pretty much what we're characterizing as a badge and incident of slavery. So there's a chapter on racial terror, which really talks about the white supremacist terror. Um, the land theft and all things that happened during the Jim Crow period. There's a chapter on political disenfranchisement that is um, that discusses, you know, the political disenfranchisement that occurred during the Jim Crow period. Um, and then there are other chapters in the report that also through all throughout the, the report, there is significant study to um, the atrocities that have been perpetuated against the African-American community, particularly during the Jim Crow period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things in talking to, because of the work I do, in talking to whites who are learning about this, what I'm discovering is they literally do not, many, many do not know about the racial terror. They do not know what that was like. And I grew up in the segregated South, so I have vivid memories. I used to lie in bed when we went to see my grandmother in rural Arkansas were scared that the white men were gonna come in the middle of the night and grab my father and brother. So, I mean, every night that I was there, I'm a child waiting for the white people to show up, the white men to show up with hoods to kidnap my father and brother. So that 
that kind of, this is just one little child, right? And it never happened. Imagine those for whom it did happen. And most whites don't, I think that people don't get that for whatever reason. A lot of people don't get that. And I think this reminds me of a particular framing that I hope penetrates society more. You know, I consider you in that story that you raised, you're a, a Jim Crow survivor, right? Just like there are Jewish Holocaust survivors, you're a Jim Crow survivor. You survived um, Jim Crow and the genocidal policies that defined that period. Um, and then that could lead to what what are what reparations are owed to Jim Crow survivors, to our Black American or African American elders who face that racial terror every day, even if in your case, you know, in the KKK never did it, but that's still terror that that left a mark on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what I would love for you to do is. You mentioned several of the chapters, racial terror, uh, just slowly, because I want the readers, the listeners to absorb everything, just the major chapters of what you investigated. So there are 13 chapters in this historic interim report, and each chapter defines what we call a badge and incident of slavery. So we found that there are innumerable or countless different badges and incidents of slavery in this country. But for the purposes of this report, we focused on the major 13 badges and incidents of slavery that still impact African-Americans today. Yes. So these badges and incidents of slavery still exist in this country and still impact African-Americans today in this country because in part of you know, again, that broken promise of reconstruction, you know, if the federal government, you know, um, continued with their plan of creating a Freedmen's Bureau, a Freedmen's Bank, Freedmen's Schools um, that were dedicated to, again, trans- transitioning these newly freed African slaves and their descendants from slavery to freedom, right? Um, and again, if the federal government you know, continue with this promise of protecting African-Americans from racial terror and other forms of discrimination. You know, these badges and incidents of slavery that we've been discussing throughout this task force and that are outlined in this report wouldn't exist, but they still exist um, because of a lack of federal and state action. So the 13 chapters of the report, again, the 13 major badges and incidents of slavery we decided to focus on, one, of course, is enslavement. But then after that, there's racist, racial terror, political disenfranchisement, housing segregation, separate and unequal education, racism in environment and infrastructure, pathologizing Black families, control of creative and intellectual Black life, Stolen labor and opportunity, unjust legal system, mental, physical harm and neglect, and then lastly, the wealth gap. Wow. That's it. When I saw that list, I said they got it. They got the they they have the whole all of the ingredients that went into the recipe. They have it. There was one thing you said that 
pathologizing the Black family. Yes. Talk about that. Why was it necessary to pathologize the Black family? Oh, that's a good question. That's a great question, actually. Why was it necessary to pathologize a Black family? Um, I, I think that chapter gets to um, kind of the psychological warfare, for lack of better words. I know it's a strong term, but um, the the psychological terror that was enacted uh, against the African-American community, you know, at, after emancipation, um, that still exists today, right? And, and we see it from messages in the mainstream media, you know, that, you know, Black Americans that were lazy, that you know, there's no fathers in the home and, you know, the Black mother as a welfare queen and all these negative images and stereotypes, you know, existed and were created by, you know, white supremacists to, um, to, to make Black Americans feel less than. So, you know, what this chapter on pathologizing the Black family, you know, it, it, we thought as a task force that it's important to illustrate that these negative stereotypes that are associated to African-Americans um, and our families um, are rooted in, you know, white supremacy. Um, they're not rooted in any facts um, about um, the integrity of our families. And also this chapter talks about how, you know, um, policies have been directed to disrupt the, the black family and how that manifests today. So for instance, in the report, you know, it, it states that African-Americans in the United States make up 14% of the American population, but black children make up 23% of those in foster care. So we are vastly or uh, 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 doubly, rep uh, doubly represented um, in the foster care system. Right. Mm -hmm. And and that's the whole thing of deservingness. The reason they're like that is because they deserve it. Because if they were right, they wouldn't have all of these problems. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about control over creative, cultural, and intellectual life. Yes. So this chapter, uh, chapter nine, control over creative. Uh, cultural and intellectual life um, is a really great chapter because, you know, in this chapter, it not only does it talk about the atrocities perpetuated against the African-American community nationally and in California, but in this chapter, you really see the contributions that African-Americans have gave to this country despite, right, the ongoing harms against us. So those contributions, you know, look like in this chapter, the amount of patents, right, the scientific inventions that, you know, African-Americans um, have, have created, um, yet um, we found in our studies that, um, you know, there are a lot of missing patents that African-Americans were not able to, to get, so they weren't able to actually patent their inventions and their innovations right. because of racism in this country. Um, in this chapter, you know, we also talk about you know, um, African-American musicians um, whose intellectual property um, were stolen or not respected. Um, you know, we talk about, uh, for instance, um, the lack of resources on this, in the state of California for allocating resources to, um, um, for African-American archives um, and archival support. 
Uh, so, you know, in this chapter, we essentially talk about entertainment, arts, sports, media, intellectual property, innovations, um, and how Black people are still, um, to this very day, um, you know, their intellectual and cultural rights are being trampled upon a bit. Yeah, that takes us into what's called cultural appropriation. Yes. <laughs> what yes. do you think about that? Is there a limit to that? What? How? How far does that go? Yeah, I mean, there's a difference between like what do people say, like cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation, and some say it's a fine line. But now, in this report, we do, um, you know, tackle cultural appropriation head on, and we even, you know, talk about the history of cultural appropriation in this country, particularly for African Americans. You know, it starts as early as probably even before you know, with Elvis Presley. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yes. And how, you know, he worked uh, with the white music industry to, um, you know, take over songs that were written by Black women and, and Black men and how, you know, still to this day, those Black women and men who created those songs, you know, they don't have any royalties, you know, their descendants are able to capitalize off of um, um, those songs as, as well. Um, but yeah, we also even talk about more contemporarily, like TikTok creators. There's Black TikTok creators who start trends and um, on TikTok, like dance trends, yet, you know, they're not being fully recognized for their art. Um, and so, yeah, we're just connecting the dots in, in this chapter um, between, you know, the roots of culture appropriation, um, which, you know, is white supremacy and it's a badge and incident of slavery where you know uh, black americans you know our ancestors rights were deprived and our autonomy um was also not respected mm -hmm. i had no idea tiktok folks were being ripped off it it, it makes sense but at but i didn't i it, i never thought about that Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> wow. Can, well, I, I don't want to go into that, but I'm wondering how can they protect their stuff if they put it out there? Well, that's a good question. You know, I'm also an attorney who specializes in intellectual property transactions. And so for instance, for the TikTok creators who create these dance trends that go viral, and then you have white TikTok stars who pretty much try to learn the dance and then they get famous and they get the brand deals off of a dance that they didn't create. Those important for the black TikTok creators, you know, to copyright um, their dance trends. But again, that, that goes to an educational gap. You know, a lot of Black Americans who, who create these trends, you know, they don't know much about intellectual property, copyright, how to protect their rights. Um, but that, that is one, that's one step. Okay, so in other words, if you're going to put it out there, copyright it. Yes, definitely. That's the bottom line. Okay, so let's talk now about the wealth gap. Okay. <laughs> Just explain what that is. Yes. So the wealth gap describes the amount of money and wealth that white Americans have in this country as compared to what wealth African-Americans have in this country. So let's take assets, for example, right? Wealth is 
measured in the, the amount of assets you have minus debt, whatever, it can get complicated. But what we found, um, and this is reflected in this study is for instance, in 2019, white households own nine times more assets than black households. Um, and so, you know, that's significant. And this is something that Senator Stephen Bradford, who's on the California Reparations Task Force has said time and time and again, uh, while you can inherit generational wealth, you can also inherit generational debt. So you see in this country how white Americans have inherited generational wealth due to, um, in some ways, um, you know, the institution of slavery in this country, if they're descendants of slave owners, but even if they're not descendants of slave owners, you know, white Americans have inherited generational wealth due to federal and state policies like um, FHA home loans, um, like the Homestead Act. You know, there are still instances of white Americans inheriting generational wealth due to federal and state practices and laws like FHA home loans that were systematically denied African-Americans um, but we're given to white Americans to start owning homes. And most wealth is, is, is in home ownership, right? Mm -hmm. um, like the Homestead Act, where the federal government essentially gave free land to white Americans. But, you know, the Homestead Act, you know, that was denied. African-Americans were denied assistance via the Homestead Act. So again, you know, whether or not white Americans are the descendants of slave owners, right? They still, by and large, you know, have inherited generational wealth. And African-Americans, in contrast, have inherited generational debt because of the denial, one, because of being descendants of slaves and, you know, and our ancestors did not receive reparations or the 40 acres and a mule that would have offset um, anything, but also, you know, um, because we were denied these governmental policies like the Homestead Act and the FHA loan, you know, we've inherited generational debt and that, that manifests itself in this ever widening and increasing uh, wealth gap in this country between white or European Americans and African Americans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I the wealth gap, I had never heard of the generational debt. I've never heard that phrase before. I've seen that whites have on the credit line, they're in the plus and fa black families are in general on the, on the minus. They have more debt than they have assets. But I hadn't heard of it as generational debt. That's exactly what it is. Exactly. And even in California, we found in the report, for instance, today, right, um, African-American households have an average median value of assets estimated at $200. So African-Americans in California have $200 worth of wealth or assets, whereas white households in California have an average assets of $110,000. So you're comparing $200 to $110,000, know, that in and of itself is a demonstration of the, the gross 
wealth gap in this country. And it's not because African-Americans are less than, it's not because we're shiftless or we're lazy. It's because there are entire systems that were mechanized and weaponized against us to keep us at the bottom class economically. Do you think that was deliberate? I do. I do think there were deliberate policies enacted by the federal and state government um, that ensured that African-Americans would be a bottom caste in this country, economically speaking. And it's not just a belief right now that we have released this historic 500 page report. There's evidence, substantial evidence to to back that claim. So was it OK, let's how to let's take how to make this not a conspiracy theory. Right. Um, What's the evidence and who is the they who did it? Mm -hmm. So, again, so for instance, if we're going to stay on the wealth gap, let's talk about, you know, the federal government. So that they would be the federal government, right? The federal government created programs that subsidized low cost loans, which allowed millions of average white Americans to own their homes for the first time. So, you know, of the 120 billion worth of new housing subsidized between 1934 and 1962, less than 2% of those homes went to non-white families. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, other bedrocks that create the American middle class, like the social, like social security and the GI bill, no, they also mostly excluded African-Americans. And you can even point to the federal tax structure um, that also discriminates against, against African-Americans. You can also point to, you know, the, again, the federal and the California Homestead Acts, which essentially gave away hundreds of millions of acres of land almost for free mostly to white Americans. And today, literally as many as four 46 million of their living descendants reap the wealth benefits of their ancestors um, getting that free land from the federal and California Homestead Acts, of which African-Americans were denied. 46 million have inherited this wealth from decades past. Yes. That African-Americans were denied. Yes, and that's approximately one quarter of the adult population of the United States. Wow, I had never heard that that before. How do you read all of this and not just get horrified? Literally, this 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 year long process that we've had in studying these issues is it. It's, it's been a cathartic and emotional experience because, as you said, it's just horrifying. Um, the contributions and the sacrifices that African-Americans have made to this country. Yeah, we've been terrorized and vilified um, and denied, you know, not only civil rights, but human rights in this country. It's it's really deplorable. But, you know, that's where the task force sets in. We're trying to <laughs> right this nation's historical wrongs against this incredible community, that being the African-American community. So what's the difference between civil rights and human rights? Great question. So, I mean, to me, you know, civil rights, you know, talks about 
mainly when we talk about civil rights in the American context, we're talking about, you know, the right to vote. I think I got it. What do you think? What do you think is the difference? (laughs) Civil rights is citizenship rights. Yes. The rights of a citizen in a particular locality. Yes. Human rights is the right to be treated with dignity and respect no matter where you live. Exactly. I couldn't have said it any better. (laughs) I really couldn't. Yeah. As soon as you start looking at something you said that made me put it together. What misconceptions did you have to conquer to even get this task force and to get to where you are? I can, I just can imagine y'all were vilified and labeled as a giveaway program and all of that. <laughs> so what, what, what myths did y'all have to fight and how did you fight them? Uh, we're still fighting myths. Um, and one of those major myths that we're fighting um, and that we're working to address, and we have addressed in some ways, but you know, we're going to hire a communications consultant for us to continue to address misconceptions as they come up. But you know, again, one major misconception, that misconception that we're fighting is this idea that California never had slavery or um, oh, yeah. California was a free state. And so why is California leading this effort for reparations? Yeah, I can see that. And so what's the response to that? So the response to the misconception that California never had slavery or that it was a free state is that it was a free state only in name and that there were several, actually over 1,500 Black people who were enslaved on California soil. Actually, some enslavers brought their um, enslaved people from the South to California to mine for gold and uh, to do other forced labor um, in the state. But not only, you know, was there, you know, slaves in the state of California, but actually the state legislature in California enacted their own Fugitive Slave Act, which was interpreted as actually more aggressive than the federal Fugitive Slave Act that existed at that time. And that pretty much empowered, you know, white vigilantes to um, capture, right, even free Black people who were living in the state of California um, to enslave them, sometimes on California soil, but to be also in many times and instances to be deported to the South to be re-enslaved. Okay. And the whole nation relied on the uh, raw products produced in the South by slaves. So that's an excellent point. So the wealth, the wealth in the North and the wealth in the West relied on exploitation and enslavement. Yes. And sharecroppers and all of that in the South. Exactly. Okay, so now what you're going to do? Let's get to the recommendations because when people I know were talking about it, they said, why should you get a check and I shouldn't get a check? Mm-hmm. So when people talk about reparations, it's usually reduced to checks. But that's not the tack you took, which is why I was so thrilled by it. Y'all didn't say we're going to issue out checks. You took another stance. So explain how you approach that? 
Well, you know, so this next year, since we've studied, you know, the atrocities against the African-American community, and that's reflected in this 500-page report, the next year is, as you said, we're going to have conversations about what reparations looks like. There are some preliminary recommendations in this report that was just released, um, one of them being the creation of an African-American, American Freeman Affairs Agency, you know, and that agency would be responsible for dispensing reparations to the descendant community and would also serve as a resource hub for the descendant community. You know, there's also some preliminary recommendations in there related to education and health, like free uh, public college tuition for African-Americans from cradle to grave or, you know, free health care as well. Um, you know, there isn't any conversation around compensation in this report, and it's not because we're not going to suggest cash payments. We actually are. Oh, you um, are? But, okay. Yeah. But the compensation part, um, we decided to reserve to our next and final report, and we've actually hired five people to serve on our economic consultant team who, who we defer to as the experts on compensation, and they're going to assist us with that later on. Okay. Well, that the whole check thing <laughs> is 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 a source of tremendous controversy. Yes. Let's take uh, the wealth gap. Mm -hmm. What is going to be the counter to that? Well, it's interesting that you asked that question because one of the economic consultants we're working with is Professor Sandy Darity, and he is an acclaimed economist at Duke University. And he says that, you know, reparations isn't reparations until and unless there are sufficient cash payments given to the descendant community that closes the racial wealth gap. Um, oh. And so, you know, he says that because of that's because that's the rule in his mind, reparations can only be considered reparations if it closes a racial wealth gap. No, he's of the belief that no state in the union has enough money in their coffers or in their budget to close the racial wealth gap that exists between the white community and the black community in this country. And so his solution is that the federal government, right, is the only entity that could truly give out reparations to this country because the federal government is the only entity that has enough money essentially to close the racial wealth gap that exists between, you know, white Americans and black Americans. Um, so for the purposes of this report, we talk about the wealth gap because it's relevant. Um, while, you know, there's an understanding that California may not be able to close the racial wealth gap alone, you know, that's ultimately going to be the responsibility of the federal government. Um, we're still working through having conversations about, okay, can California with the budget that they do have, still pay out cash payments in terms of reparations for the descendant community. And there are many people on the task force who believe that California can provide reparations in the form of compensation. Will it be enough to close the racial wealth gap? Probably not, um, but it's something we're working on. Okay, so here's where then I'm going to be controversial. Mm -hmm. You may have heard that lottery winners, 75 to 80% of them go broke within two or three years, right? Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> a flood of money, a flood of money to people who are not used to having it. I don't think it's going to eliminate the racial wealth gap unless there are supports given along with that. Financial management, uh, education, that the structural things that keep people impoverished have to be addressed also. Now, I'm making an assertion. What do you think about that? Um, I completely agree. And there are actually many task force members who agree with you, particularly Vice Chair Amos Brown has, has spoken to that numerous times, right? You know, cash payments, compensation, you know, isn't the, the only answer or only solution in that, you know, if cash payments and compensation is on the table, you know, there does need to be um, some, some type of, of financial literacy that could come with it. So we don't want to see people just mismanaging their funds and giving it right back to the, to the, the to the oppressors for lack of better words. So for instance, in the, in terms of the preliminary recommendations in this interim report, you know, one of the recommendations is to create this California African-American Freedom Affairs Agency. And within that agency, there would actually be a business affairs office to provide mm. you know, ongoing education related to entrepreneurialism and financial literacy, and also to provide business grants and to establish even public-private reparative justice-oriented partnerships. Good. I'm so glad to hear that. And I'm glad I'm, to hear I'm not the only one who's been thinking about that, that y'all are on top of that. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm looking at the time. Um, this has been wonderful. Mm -hmm. What's your, thinking about the recommendations, what's your favorite one that you really want to see happen? <laughs> Oh, there's so many. I will say, you know, I'll speak on one like structural solution. And again, that is the establishment of the California African-American Freedmen Affairs Agency. Uh, that is probably my favorite one because it came from community input. But it, it speaks to, you know, the, the, to, to reversing the structural racism that negatively impacts our community. So in that agency, you know, there will be a branch to process claims, um, and process claimants for eligibility. There will be a genealogy branch to support potential claimants in eligibility. There would wow. be, yeah, there would be a, um, a civic engagement branch to support ongoing political education on African-American history and to support civic engagement among African-American youth. You know, there will be a freedman education branch to offer free education and to facilitate free tuition initiatives. Uh, between claimants and California universities. You know, there'll be a social services branch, a cultural affairs branch, a legal affairs branch, a medical services branch. So it is, you know, that, I think that recommendation, an agency that has all those different branches that really gets to all aspects of African-American life in this country um, is my favorite. <laughs> that is outstanding. I'm looking at the ecology the whole ecological system that supports a family or an individual. It's not enough to say what they should do. What are the structural supports around a person that helps them go in the right direction? 
And yes. so what you're talking about in that agency then is to have structural supports on all these different arenas. Yes. I Brilliant. love that. And, you know, since you're a social worker, I'll read off, you know, the social services and family affairs branch would exist to identify and mitigate the ways that current and previous policies have damaged and destabilized Black families. So services might include treatment for trauma and family healing services to strengthen the family unit, you know, stress resiliency services, financial planning services, career planning, and civil and family court services. Wow. Just cover the gamut. <laughs> yes. So are you excited every day to go to work? I mean, this is just wonderful. No, this has been an exciting process. And it's been a, a, an honor and a privilege to serve. You know, the nine-member task force, we don't get paid for this work. This oh, is you don't? No, this is a labor of love, a purely volunteer position. Mm -hmm. Wow. How much time does it take from you? It takes a lot of time. It's insofar <laughs> that I actually had to take some time off from my real job, but now I'm getting back into the job market because I got bills to pay. <laughs> oh, so you literally worked on this virtually full time. Yeah, at a certain point I had to, yeah. Whoa. Well, as a citizen of the United States, I want to thank a citizen of the United States and of California for the work <laughs> you're doing on our behalf. And I fervently hope this work will spread. Likewise, me too. Thank you. Thank you. I have enjoyed this. Uh, how can people reach you? Yes. So people can reach me personally on Twitter. I provide updates regularly on the task force and our work um, and the press that we've been receiving. So my Twitter is Camila V. Moore, and that's V as a Victoria. So Camila V. Moore is my Twitter. But if you'd like to learn more about the task force, you can subscribe to our mailing list. And that information can be found on our website at oag.ca.gov forward slash AB3121. And on that website, you can, again, subscribe to our mailing list, find out more about the individual task force members. Um, and then you can also find links to our historic report and our executive summary and our key findings and all that great stuff. Okay, so I fervently hope that listeners will go to the website and look at this magnificent work. The, the gamut is covered. I mean, I, I, I just was totally blown away. So thank you, Pamela, for uh, talking with us. And I wish you... I don't know, good fortune, speed, whatever in your work. And Thanks. I admire that you were doing, you're doing this as a labor of love. That even makes it even more impressive. Okay. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Dean. I really appreciate this conversation. It was, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's amazing. All right. So many takeaways. The most startling to me was the concept of generational debt. I knew there was such a thing as generational wealth. And so it's logical that there would be generational debt, but the concept was a revelation to me. So how can people escape generational debt that has accumulated over centuries and inherited by family after family after family in that tree? In this country, 
Individuals are assumed to be responsible for their own lives. Yet how can millions of people overcome the generational debt they inherited through no fault of their own? The counter are those who say, how can individuals who were not responsible for slavery or segregation or sharecropping or all of that be responsible for things their ancestors did? Just as many of us as, yes, African-Americans inherited generational debt, so that many whites inherit generational wealth. I remember teaching a class talking about how in World War II, many World War II vets got FDA loans. They were denied, for the most part, to people of color. One student commented in one of the, my classes, commented that her grandparents had gotten that loan and that her family still had that house. She's not responsible for what her grandparents got, but she is enjoying the benefits of that house and the wealth that's accumulating in that house year after year. So how can we make this fair? No one is talking away, taking away that family's house. But what should happen to the descendants of those who had no such opportunity and who were legally, deliberately denied from that opportunity? As Warren Buffett said, the wound from which you emerge determines your fate to an enormous degree for most of the 7 billion people in the world. The California Reparations Committee is seeking equal footing, at least in California. My second takeaway is that the task force is going to address systemic structural factors that keep the oppression ongoing. They are looking at public transportation, prison reform, healthcare reform. They're looking at the structural aspects in our government policies that perpetuate discrimination. That's so exciting to me that a government entity is taking this on and looking at the systems that keep all of us from having a fair shot. It's efforts like this that give me hope. And I hope those of you who are listening can see the potential here.